Hello and welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. Today our Pastor Emeritus Fenton Moorhead will deliver a message regarding Jesus' triumph over death through His resurrection. You can follow along with this message in Matthew 28, 2-4. You can also find our weekly message outline and many other resources on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or you can check out our Brookwood app. So how many of you are really glad to be here this morning? Wonderful. Those of you that are not glad, how many of you would rather be here than in the hospital? All right, that's everybody. That's everybody. We've been in this series, The Life of Jesus, for 38 weeks, or 38 messages. We're to the point where my assignment today is the resurrection. And I prayed over this, said, Lord, what do you want me to do with this message? And I recently heard a message on the resurrection from the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, Andy Stanley. I put a reference to it in the bottom of the outline. And if you need more of what you get today, I want you to go there listen to that message. And then there's another article there as well, because I'm just going to touch on some things. But I want to tell you why I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why I believe. I believe that the gospel records are reliable, that they are eyewitness accounts of what really, truly happened. I believe one morning, There was one discovery, one event that changed history forever, and that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this message, for those of you that already believe, I want it to encourage you. For those of you that sometimes wonder, and for those of you that are here that really struggle with this, and it's very difficult for you to grasp I really pray that this is going to speak to your heart this morning. I believe the New Testament records are reliable records that even if you doubt Bible's the Word of God, there's evidence here that you should pay attention to. So let's begin with the resurrection record as we find it in Matthew 28, verses 1 and following. We read, after the Sabbath, the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his robe as white as snow. And the guards were so shaken from fear of him that they became like dead men. But the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has been resurrected just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples 
He has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, greetings, good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. The women went to the tomb out of respect and reverence for Jesus. They did not expect to find the risen Lord there. When dead people are buried, they stay dead. But the authentication that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God was the resurrection from the dead. He was crucified and buried for our sins. He was raised from the dead in victory over sin and death so we can have faith and hope that God does forgive our sins and God does give us by grace the gift of eternal life in Christ. And in the future, we have a hope that we will be resurrected and given a new spiritual body that will last forever. Some of us are more ready for that body than others. And that we will see and fellowship with people from across the ages as well as loved ones who've gone before us. I believe that hope is real. And so when the women found the risen Lord, notice how this carefully describes, they saw him, they touched him, they listened to him. This was not some kind of fantasy. It was not some kind of imaginary experience. This was an experience with a risen Lord. And everything Jesus ever said and did depends on the authentication of the resurrection. He said to Martha, not too many days before his crucifixion, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. But for hundreds of years, there have been people who are doing their best to remove the miraculous from the Bible and to reduce Jesus, to modernize Jesus, so to speak, and to turn him into a good man, a great moral teacher. Perhaps one of the classic writings on dealing with this comes from a former atheist agnostic named C.S. Lewis who many of you know from the Chronicles of Narnia, his most popular work that he wrote for grandchildren. But he wrote much more. 
C.S. Lewis wasn't saved until he was 32 years old. He was a professor of literature at Oxford University and a proud atheist agnostic. When he was converted, he described himself as he coming into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming, the most reluctant convert in all of England. It's great to read his story, surprised by joy. During World War II, he did lectures on the radio in England, giving people encouragement in that time when bombs were falling. And this is what he wrote about the attempt to reduce Jesus to just a good man, a great moral teacher. He wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. The Apostle Paul states it this way, that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply myth and legend, we really have nothing at all. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, he said, chapter 15, and by the way, he wrote this to the church at Corinth. If you read 1 Corinthians, you find out this was a very troubled church. He basically goes from problem to problem to problem that the people were having and the difficulties they were facing. Every now and then I hear somebody say, what we need today is a New Testament church. Well, you should pick which one. Because the church at Corinth, you know, I think we're blessed that they had so many problems because we need to get to read about one of their problems was that Corinth was in Greece, and Greece believed the Greeks believed, according to Greek philosophy, that the spirit was good, but the body was evil. So they had a hard time with a bodily resurrection. So Paul is speaking to them, and he's saying, "Look, the resurrection is real." All of 1 Corinthians 15 is about this. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the earliest writings in the New Testament. Okay? While eyewitnesses are still alive. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Here's what he wrote. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. It's empty. It's worthless. You are still in your sins. For those who have fallen asleep or have died in Christ are lost. If the resurrection isn't real then they're lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Without the resurrected Lord, those first disciples would never have become apostles. If they had not seen a resurrected Christ, the fishermen would have gone back to fishing in Galilee. 
The tax collector would have gone back and gotten some other job in cooperation with the Romans. And the others simply would have gone back to their lives because they had absolutely nothing to gain from a conspiracy. For you see, people come up with conspiracies in order to be rich and famous, not suffer and die. And the original apostles, all except one, died a martyr's death. And all went through lives of persecution and threats of every kind. The apostle Paul himself, not an original apostle, but called later, left a life of being a famous Pharisee who persecuted the church. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. And because of his testimony for Christ, he ended up being arrested, placed in prison in Rome, and there martyred. And so you see the evidence for the resurrection. Why would these people base their lives on a lie? No. Going to get to that point in a minute. But the original apostles, they simply would have gone back. But again, this is the 21st century. Can we really believe a person was raised from the dead? Yes, if he is who he says he is. If he is the Son of God, sent from God to die on a cross for the sins of the world and then to be raised victorious over sin and death. So we have a living faith, a living faith. Now, you can hear in universities, oh, the Gospels were written years after all the eyewitnesses were dead, and it's just nothing but myth and legend. And some of you have experienced that in different schools that you've gone to, or you've watched a TV program that says this, that is fabricated. But I believe there's solid evidence The New Testament records are reliable accounts of eyewitnesses. So just bear with me. I want to show that just for a minute. Point number one, I think we have reliable eyewitness accounts. And so here's a historic timeline of what happened back then when Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected from the dead. We begin the birth of Jesus, okay, around year zero. His death, burial, and resurrection, and the beginning of the first church, about 33 AD. And then, one of the reasons I believe the Gospels are written early, before 70 AD, is that in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and reduced the temple that Herod had built the Jews, an elaborate, incredible edifice. They reduced it to rubble. They burned it to the ground. And then the gold that was in the temple had melted into the stones, and so they took the stones apart to get the gold. And the destruction of the temple is not mentioned in any of the four Gospels. Something so significant would be there. Why? Because Jesus prophesied there won't be one stone left standing. And so they would have included, and this happened 
at such and such a time, but it's not there. And so many New Testament scholars that believe the Gospels were written early, while eyewitnesses were still alive, go back to this event and say, wait a minute, look at this. The idea that it was, the Gospels were written later when the eyewitnesses were dead is a premise of those who want to prove untruth. And so there's a solid argument. No, wait a minute. The Gospels, the resurrection teaching was there from the very beginning. But we have another witness earlier, much earlier, and it's from the Apostle Paul. We know the Apostle Paul was converted probably three or four years after Christ lived on the earth. And we know that when he was saved, he went to Jerusalem to spend some time with Peter and James, who was the leader of the early church. So we look at about the year 52 when he was in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and he started the church when he wrote about the resurrection. He wrote the letter about the year 55. Eyewitnesses are very much still alive. In fact, that's what he says. Look with me now at what is written in 1 Corinthians 15, where he's saying, okay, this is the gospel I received. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received, what I received, what he received from the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and the witness of eyewitnesses like Peter and James, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared, he was seen by Cephas, meaning Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, meaning they've passed on. Why did he use the word asleep for death? Because sleeping people wake up. The belief in the resurrection. So we see Paul is saying, there's no conspiracy. There's no legend. There's no myth written years later. But this is the very fabric of the faith of the first believers in the New Testament, that there is a risen Lord, and they saw the risen Lord. You see, when Paul says that he went back to Jerusalem after his conversion to spend time with Simon Peter and with James and other eyewitnesses that surely he saw and met them, That's very, very early. He's talking to Simon Peter. What Paul is saying to the people at Corinth is, if you've got a problem with this, then go to Jerusalem and talk to the people that actually saw him because he is risen from the dead. And so this is the faith that's there. And one of the reasons I believe 
that these records are authentic. Now, we can believe it or not believe it, but to say it's legend or myth is to misrepresent the first records of what happened. You can call these people liars, but you can't say they intentionally wrote legend or myth. Now, there's something else about this scripture here that New Testament scholars, much smarter than I, say we should note. They believe what is here is one of the first creeds of the early church. Now, how many of you grew up in a church where you learned a creed and it was a part of every service? Many of you. The Apostles' Creed, probably written around the year 100. A creed is a carefully crafted statement of what you believe. And it's something that can be remembered and repeated. And so it became a part of the liturgy of the early church. Scholars believe one of the very first creeds is found in this scripture from the Apostle Paul that he's repeating, he's writing down what the early church said in their worship services when they gathered in Jerusalem and they reaffirmed their faith every time they met. Here it is. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the grave and was seen. So the very early testimony of the earliest church affirmed the risen Lord. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and that is what created the church. The church did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the church. That's what I believe the record says. So I think there's eyewitnesses there. The second reason I believe in the resurrection of Jesus is that I don't believe that liars withstand persecution, beatings, and death. As I said, the apostles were not sophisticated men who would come up with a conspiracy that they would all go through all kinds of hardship and die. And the Apostle Paul, uh, losing every friend he ever had because he followed Christ, but making new friends in Christ, and then giving his life to take the gospel to places that had never heard who Jesus Christ was. The book of Acts tells us all about Paul's journeys, and it ends with Paul in prison in Rome, where we know later he was martyred. And so liars don't do this. Liars don't live lives of great and noble sacrifice and benefit for others. Liars do things for fame and fortune, not for this reason. One of the illustrations of this is in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John are arrested, and this isn't long after the, the church was born and Jesus was resurrected, they're arrested for healing a man who is lame. You find it in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 8. Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people and elders, 
He's been arrested, and now he's in front of the very people who had Jesus crucified, the same religious authorities. He says, if we're being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy, and there's salvation in no one else. And when the rulers observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized they were uneducated and untrained men. They were amazed and recognized They had been with Jesus. The ruler said, what should we do with these men? For an obvious sign evident to all who live in Jerusalem has been done through them, and we cannot deny it. However, so this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again, the name of Jesus. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And what did these men say? What would you say? Man, they're threatening me. I'm in trouble. I'm getting out of here. No. Here's what they said. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. You know, if you saw a man who was raised from the dead, you might want to tell people about it. They did. And they wouldn't be shut up. Keep reading the book of Acts and you see they are imprisoned. You see the persecution of the early church. You see the early Christians dispersed, and they go and begin, they don't run, they go and they share who Christ is. And so the church spread throughout the ancient world. Liars do not withstand persecution, beatings, and death. And then the third point, one of my very favorites, why do I believe in the resurrection? Because... I believe we can see the presence of the risen Christ today in his followers. Paul wrote, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who delivered himself up for me. And so... Every now and then, I think we get a glimpse of the risen Christ. Uh, I don't mean seeing it in preachers. (laughs) I mean seeing it in ordinary, everyday followers of Christ. I've had some experiences where I just sense the risen Christ is here right now. Back in 69, I was a young pastor. How many of you were not even born in 1969? Come on, tell me. Boy, makes you feel a little low. My birthday's November 11th. How old do you think I'll be? Give me a guess. Thank you. Daniel knows how old I am, so he said the right thing. I will be 78 years old. 
November 11th. No, 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 no. My wife wants me to tell you that I married her when she was a child. I've had opportunities to experience in people the presence of Christ. I think you see the presence of Christ when you look at the children in India. Wherever there is oppression and suffering, Christ is there. And he's waiting for his people to show up to be his hands, to be his instruments of caring and loving. Back in 1969, I was about to tell you, I was a young pastor, and I'd heard of a remarkable work uh, in Brooklyn, of all places, a place called Teen Challenge. Some of you have heard the name David Wilkerson. And so I was young enough and crazy enough to write them a letter and say, would you let me come for a week to see what you're doing? I'd like to learn. And they let me come. I had no idea what I was getting to. In a day, they had me out on the streets of Brooklyn uh, in a group singing and then saying, okay, you preach. You know. And, but I, I've roomed with a young man who had been through that program and he had been on hard drugs, on heroin. He was in his 20s. And he was just Remarkable. I I got to know him, and I said, tell me about your life. And he said, I lived a terrible life. I was simply a criminal, and I stole to feed my drug habit every day. I even stole from my family. I stole from my mother. And he said, Christ set me free. And now they let me stay here to be a part of this program to help the people who were going through what I used to go through. When it was nighttime and we'd go to sleep, I had a little bunk on one side of the room and he was on the other side. He was Hispanic and he played Christian music in Spanish. But I could still recognize it was How Great Thou Art and other hymns. But when he prayed, you know, He prayed on his knees by his bed. I prayed in bed. I had a hard time praying in bed that night. Prayed on his knees, and I had finished my prayers. He was just getting started. Over and over again, I'd hear him simply praising God. Glory a Dios. Glory to God. And telling Jesus that he loved him. You see, the risen Christ is there. We just have to look for him. He's saving people. He's rescuing people. And this is going on all over the world. There are more people coming to Christ today in places you would never expect. In China, in Africa, even in the Near East, where it's against the law to share the gospel. There are more and more people coming to Christ every day. Our friends, Rick and Laura Leatherwood missionaries, are in a country I can't tell you about where the Taliban is, and they're teaching in a Christian school, and they can't leave where they live without an armed escort. See, Christians where the risen Christ is 
or out in the world. And two weeks ago when Praveen was here, I think we got to see the risen Christ in him because there's not a proud bone in that man's body. He simply lives to do what God has given him to do. And he is so transparent. I think people where Christ is really at work, there's a transparency. There is a compassion. There is a fruit of the Spirit. There is a quality of love that's compassion. There is a joy that is not circumstantial. There is a peace that never goes away. There is patience, there is kindness, there is goodness, there is meekness, there is gentleness, and even self-control. And so when we see the Holy Spirit at work in people, we are seeing the risen Christ. My final point is, I believe in the resurrection because of the power of the gospel. When the gospel is preached, that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Something happens to people. I remember maybe 10 years old, 11 years old, being at a meeting in the Banshell down, downtown Miami where I grew up, And there was a gospel preacher, a layman, uh, a grocer's son from Texas. If you've heard of H-E-B food stores out there, it was his son preaching the gospel. And something was happening inside of me that I could not identify. A sense of need. A sense that I was being beckoned that the Spirit of God, I could not have said at that point it was the Spirit of God, but I so vividly remember those feelings. And I think the gospel works on our feelings, and it's not bad. You know, without emotions and feelings, we are really zero. We're zero. If all you are is a mind, you could just be a robot or a computer. But with feelings, with compassion, with tenderness, there is life. So I think when the Spirit of God begins to work, He awakens our emotions to Him. And we develop a sense of something is lacking in me that God wants to deal with. Something is wrong in me that God wants to make right. And he wants to do this through his son, Jesus. And it's something you cannot do for yourself. You can't pay for it. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. You'll never be worthy of it. It's a pure gift of love. In the writings of Paul in the book of Romans, which is his masterpiece, there is a road to salvation. It's some scripture verses that just are the gospel, and they're very simple. 
The first one is that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And I always circle the word all. There's nobody that has always hit the mark. We have all missed the mark that God has set for us. And we've lived lives in many ways that are just selfish rebellion against God and his ways. And yet God has not thrown us away like garbage. He still cherishes us. We are told sin's sin's penalty in God's gift. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death or separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin pays off in death, but God has a gift for us. His name is Jesus, and he is the resurrected Lord. And we're told the gospel in Romans 5, 8, God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we've cleaned up our life, not when we've gotten everything right, but while we're all messed up, our lives smell like garbage, and we've made many choices we regret. But God doesn't throw us away. He loves us, and that's why Christ came and died for us. And then there's the explanation of what salvation faith is. How do you cross the line from unbelief to belief? How do you cross the line to become a child of God? And it's written in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. This is the message of faith we proclaim. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That's probably the earliest creed of the church. Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with a heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with a mouth resulting in salvation. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of Jesus Christ the Lord will be saved. There is no exception. You cannot be so far gone that God does not reach farther still to call you, to beckon you where there's this sense of awakening that starts inside of your heart that I need a Savior, and his name is Jesus. See, Christian faith is simply for sinners. Nobody begins as a saint. And the word saint really means that we've been given the righteousness of Christ. It's not our own. And so the calling is there. We call on the name of the Lord because God calls us. Our emotions are touched. We are awakened within. There is a sense of need and identity. Yes, I am a sinner who needs a Savior. You know, you can have everything this world offers. We think we need what? I need a bigger house. 
I need a luxury car. I need a Rolex watch. I need to become thin and beautiful. And I'll be happy. And I'll have it. Thank God that's not what life is about. I've given up on being thin and beautiful. I'm in shape. I've chosen to like the shape I'm in. God loves us in Christ. We're called then to not be conformed to this world, but to live a transformed life, to think in a new way, to know what the will of God is. And that's what it means to confess Jesus as Lord, that you want him to direct your life. You no longer want to live the same old way. And so this morning, I'd like to give you an opportunity to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. I want to ask you this. I'd like to pray for those of you who sense the Spirit of God is speaking to you today and drawing you to Christ in a way you've never been drawn before. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. If you are sensing the call of God this morning, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. So that I and others around you can pray for you. Would you do something very simple? Just lift your hand up. God is speaking to my heart today in a special way. Anybody here that would say, All right, I see a few hands out there. God knows your heart. Don't be afraid. To know Christ is to know life like you've never known it before. Lord, I pray for each person here today. I thank you that Jesus Christ is real, He lives. His bones are nowhere to be found. He is risen. And through him, we can be risen too. We can live a new life. I just pray that you'd continue to speak to hearts today and draw people to yourself. And I ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. If you have questions about this message or you would like to request prayer, we encourage you to visit our website at brookwoodchurch.org forward slash get help. You can also find our message archives on our website or on our Brookwood app. Thank you so much for listening and have a blessed week.